שלום. Has life ever left you void of God's shalom peace? Has it left you lost and confused? Causing you to wonder what is God up to? And making you, you know, asking that the psalmist's uh, favorite question, uh, does God really care? Perhaps you have been overlooked, mistreated, or even oppressed. You may even feel like it's human cost, human cost, much akin to the catastrophic holocaust. You know, throughout the entire history of the Jewish people, for thousands of years, they have faced not only relentless persecution and op- opposition, but also attempts to destroy and annihilate them. Now, some of the attempts are well known, like the Holocaust, as I already mentioned. And some may not be so well known, like what I call the Herman Costs. Recorded for us in our scripture text for this morning, found in Esther chapter 2, verse 19 to chapter 3, verse 15. And I hope that the Herman cost in Esther chapter 2, verse 19 to chapter 3, verse 15 will become well known if it's not so well known to you until now. Why so? Why so? Besides the scripture passage before us that we are looking at, assigned to me to preach, because you see, you're going to learn from it. From this message this morning, how to trust the hidden hand of God even in the midst of the darkest difficulties of our lives. And so if life had been like a human cost for you in that you, are, you feel lost, you, you feel confused, like I said, or even you feel they've been overlooked, they've been mistreated, you're oppressed, Esther chapter 2, verse 19 to chapter 3, verse 15, I believe is God's word for you this morning. Now, there are four scenes in this Herman cost. First, we have Mordecai's patriotism, which will lead us to the actual Herman cost that we will see uh, later on. First of all, Mordecai's patriotism, chapter 2, verse 19 to, to verse 23. Esther chapter 2. Let me read for us, beginning with verse 19. Now, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instruction as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Tana and Cherish, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Zerkis. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals, 
in the presence of the king. Now, these five verses that closes Esther chapter 2 are far from incidental to the narrative of Esther. I paid special attention to that phrase there in the second half of verse 19. That short phrase there that says Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Because I suggest for us that that is significant as it takes us to a situation, it alerts us to a situation that will have great bearing concerning the fate of the Jews. All right, as our text opened this morning in chapter 2, verse 19, it begins with some more virgins uh, assembling for a second time. Now, I don't know about you. I suspect that the person's favorite sport must be holding beauty pageants, huh? like what we have as Miss Universe today. Because what? In, in the scripture passage preceding Esther chapter 2, verse 19, you were already introduced to one such beauty contest, isn't it? Yeah? In which uh, King Zerkis was attracted to Esther and then therefore made queen instead of Vasti. All right, all that you read in Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to uh, verse 19 here. Now, you recall, we're told that Esther's parents died when she was young. Chapter 2, verse 7. Yeah? And then here in chapter 2, verse 20, it, it, it reiterates for us that her cousin, a Jewish noble named Mordecai from the tribe of Benjamin, had raised her by his own daughter. Mordecai, however, we are told in verse 20, told Esther to keep her identity as a Jewish concealed. And so she did. So Esther, queen notwithstanding, obeyed and honoured Mordecai. But apparently King Zerkis probably didn't care who she is and where she is from. Hey, this guy is in love, man. He has found himself a new queen, okay? So it didn't bother him concerning the nationality or where uh, the ethnic background of his new queen, Esther. So, so our text this morning, as I've said, opened with another beauty pageant, verse 19. No satisfactory explanation has been put forward for this second flash parade. But the question persists. I mean, if a new queen had been found, why should further virgins be required? Some believe that King Zerkis had gathered another group of young virgins to serve as concubine within his harem of women. So, lust was not yet satisfied. Lust was not yet satisfied. And therefore, being pleased with the first flesh buried, he desired another collection of virgins whom he might make his concubines. Now, when I study the scriptures, I've seen over and over again the providential hand of God at work. In the book of Esther, we're going to see the same thing again. All right? God has so far used the sinful actions of King Zerkis to raise up a new queen, the Jewish girl Esther. 
I believe, you know, as Christians, it is a beautiful thing for the eyes of the child of God to be spiritually open so that they might see God at work in their lives. Problem is, too many believers live in a state of spiritual slumber, a condition that the Apostle Paul recognized when he said to the Ephesians Christians that they needed to what? Wake up. They needed to wake up. He told them that they were living, living in perilous times. The times in which you are living today are no less perilous. And so we too need to wake up. Now if you look at verses 21 to 23, the closing verses of Esther chapter 2, Think about Mordecai's predicament in these closing verses. By some chance, Mordecai became aware of a plot by Bictana and Teresh to assassinate the king. Now, assassination, especially of reigning monarchs, is no idle threat. Yeah? History tells us King Zacchaeus was indeed assassinated after a number of years on the throne. Now, these two men, Bictana and Teresh, we are told here in verse 21, they were two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway. In other words, they are not Jaga, you know. <laughs> they are much more than Jaga. These two men were probably eunuchs who were in charge of watching and securing the sleeping quarters of the king. The king had literally placed his own personal safety and life in the hands of this man. Now, we are not told why these two men were angry with the king. Right? They just simply say they were angry, but we are not told why. Well, many commentators agree that they may have been upset over his treatment of the former queen, Vasti, and even now the selection of the new queen, Esther. And we are told in verse 21 that Mordecai, as I pointed out earlier on, this very important phrase, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, this is important. This indicates the strong possibility that he held a position of prominence. You see, because in those days, at the king's gate, it is a prominent place because that's where official business takes place, took place. Okay? So this fact about Mordecai showed how he could then have uncovered the assassination uh, plot and, and how uh, a bitter hostility uh, that threatened the entire Jewish nation. His official position does help set the stage for the following three scenes, which we'll be looking at shortly. So we are told here in verse 22, Mordecai told Queen Esther about this assassination plot, who in turn informed the king and then the assassins were caught, and then they were hanged on the gallows. Or if you read, if you are following the NIV, that they were the foot, they were impelled on poles. Now that's a very, very torturous form of execution. Okay. Uh, but this was not an unusual method of execution in the Persian Empire. Darius. Zerkis' father was known to have once impelled 3,000 men. Such a torturous execution 
I suggest for us it's the first type of crucifixion. Our Lord Jesus himself was crucified by the Romans, but crucifixion was apparently invented by the Persian, but perfected by the Romans. Now, so Mordecai saved the king, but he was not rewarded. Someone else did, as we will see in chapter 3. Now, many of us, myself included, would be angry with God, wouldn't we? Yeah, if we were Mordecai, we'd be angry with God. The question is, can we, in such situation, still remember that God is still in charge, that he's in control, and that he knows what he's doing. Now, we'll come back to this point that God has a plan for our life and that God is in control, but for now, consider this. God was setting in motion the plan of salvation for the Jews. And he was using an unknown, virgin, Jewish girl to make it happen. Sound familiar? Our Christmas may be three months away. <laughs> but this sounds very familiar, isn't it? Now, moving on to scene two. Scene two introduces us to what I call the actual Herman plot, the Herman cost, okay, which begins with the promotion of Herman in chapter three, verse one to verse six. Okay, let me read for us Esther chapter three, beginning with verse one. After this event, King Zerkis honored Herman, son of Hamadatta, the Eger guy elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all of the other, the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them who he was. He was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. And yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of the keys. So like I said, Mordecai saved the king. But it was Haman who got promoted. Despite what he did was recorded in the annals of the king. The king couldn't have forgotten, right? Chapter 2, verse 23. Well, it was quite normal huh, for ancient king, in fact, for any king, any time, to have favorites. Okay? and to appoint them to positions of authority. And I believe here this is what exactly Zacchaeus did to Haman. All right? He pro promoted Haman in verse 1 and given him an exalted position above all the aristocracy of Middle, Middle Persia, including Mordecai. Why, we ask? Why? No reason. No reason. Now that seems to mirror life, isn't it? Uh, so if you're facing situations like this, you keep asking why. Sometimes there are no reason. And that's life. 
So Haman was made second only to the king, and the decree had been put forth by the king that people had to kneel down to him. And this is where it gets interesting. So now the Jews' peaceful existence up to this time in Persia was shattered, was shattered in a big way. Okay? The newly promoted Haman wanted to make all the Jews pay for one Jew, Mordecai, for disrespecting him. And Haman could afford to do that because he was elevated to the second most powerful person in the country besides the king. Now, historically, historically, Haman was a descendant of the mortal enemies of God's people. Now, I don't have time this morning to give you all the historical background. We can read it for ourselves. It started in Exodus, and if I actually go all the way, it takes place uh, in 1 Samuel. Okay, you're interested to read, read it for yourself, but uh, I don't have time to go into all the history. But now here we read, Haman had been promoted to second in command in the Persian Empire, and this certainly doesn't bode well for the Jews. Okay? Verses 4 and 5, it seems evident from... Herman's fury and his attempted genocide, that there was this strong anti-Semitic attitudes in the Persian Empire, which seems to explain up to this time, all right, Mordecai's reluctance to reveal his true ethnic background, that he was a Jew. Okay? The other thing is, it makes one wonder why in a culture where bowing down with respect was the norm, here in Herman's case, the people had to be commanded to do so. Mordecai flatly refused to do so. So like I said, for several years, Mordecai had not let Esther tell the king that she was a Jewish. Chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 20. But now, Mordecai was going to use their national heritage, their Jewish roots as an excuse for not bowing down to Haman, an acclaimed Persian official. So the question we must ask is, what prompted the defiance of Mordecai? We know nothing of anything personal between Haman and Mordecai up to this point. We also know that Jews that normally bow down in, in the presence of others as a show of respect, as we some, some of us do too. However, However, in the cultures of Persia and in many other places, bowing down was related to worship of the one being bowed to. Okay? Bowing down was related to worship in the one bowed before. Like the people who were expected to worship their king as a god. And that's why they had to bow to their king, that the king is God. So Mordecai might have been very, uh, not been very vocal about his ancestry up to this point of time, but this is where he drew the line. He will not bow down in worship of anyone or anything other than Jehovah, other than Yahweh. Now this reminds me of the three young Hebrew friends of Daniel in Daniel chapter 3, right? who similarly refused to bend or bow, and they did not burn. Right? We, we need the commitment of Mordecai today. And may God help us all to make 
Jesus, the priority in our lives, and always to worship Him and Him alone. Now we read in verses 5 to 6 that because of that, Haman was furious. Huh? Enraged by Mordecai's refusal, he now set out to find a way to kill not only, not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. Now listen. Haman was being satanically used to target the entire Jewish race in an unsuccessful attempt to change the course of redemption history and God's plan for Israel. Parallels have been drawn between Haman and Hitler, and hence my own rhetoric between the Holocaust and the Haman cost. Okay. No matter what Haman's plan was, God's plan cannot be thwarted. God can and will overturn man's diabolical efforts. Sometimes by miraculous acts, but a lot of times through seeming acts of a chance event, as in what we are seeing here in Esther. No matter what the method God used, God is always working on behalf of his, of his people. So we move on to scene 3, in chapter 3, verse 7 to verse 11, where we have the human cost elaborate plan. Haman's plan, verse 7 to verse 11. Verse 7, in the 12 years of King Zacchaeus, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pearl, that is, the Lord, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the Lord fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar, so it's about a year for it to happen. Then Haman said to King Zacchaeus, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of the kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's interest, therefore, to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his senate ring from his fingers and give it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Now, this was the first PLO I submit to you. This was the first PLO, Persian Liberation Organization. And Haman's plan as to when to exterminate God's people was cast by Lot, we are told in verse 7. Why? Because the person's religion stressed on, on, on fate and, and on chance. And a lot, casting of Lot should be like our modern-day dice, yeah? which were cast to determine our future decisions or actions. But little did Haman realize that in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, we are told that God providentially controls the outcome of the Lord. The original readers of this book would have understood that God was working to protect His people even in the timing of events. Later, the Haman then realized that the God who created all things, 
and was in control of all events, was in control of that very situation, Haman's lot casting. As things turns out, as I've said, the Jews had almost one year to prepare themselves for the conflict with their enemies. Verse 7. You see, God has already prepared a means of deliver, delivering His people from Haman's evil plot as the book of Esther unfolds for us. Right? You have to wait for that in subsequent study of the book of Esther. But with this casting of the lords and with God's deliverance of the Jews, the Jews today, in the Feast of Purim or, or the Festival of Lords, still, today still celebrate their victory from annihilation by Haman. Okay? I'll, I'll have a whole sermon uh, to preach on the Feast of Purim, the, the Festival of Lords, uh, when I come back to preach again on the 21st of, of November. Okay, so you've got to wait till then for uh, more details on this Festival of Lords. But for now, follow me. Haman's plan was clearly satanic. Right? He was diabolically clever in his construction. Proceeding as it did from the truth that the Jews were a dispersed and separate people, right? To a half-truth that their customs are different from all of us. To an outright lie that they did not obey the king's laws. Now, Herman refers to his evil plan to only a certain people, we're told in verse 8. Right? He never divulged their identity except to falsely accuse the Jews that they did not obey the king's law, an outright lie. And in his plan, note also that Haman would foot his own bill uh, incurred in carrying out his plan, verse 9. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact dollar amount <laughs> for you. I was trying to work it out. What, what's the worth today in, in our, our currency? But uh, I, I couldn't figure that out, but, but I can only tell you it is a lot of money, okay? It's a lot of money. Haman must have been a corrupt official, right, to have so much money. Surely he couldn't have acquired so much money without being crooked, and especially from plundering the Jews. Now, the king would, of course, have easily been eager to eliminate any rebellion against his authority, right? although he did not seem interested in the money, we are told in verse 10 and verse 11. But, but by giving his senate ring to Haman, the king was basically, basically giving Haman a blank check. Okay? King Zerkis was allowing the enemy of the Jews, as Haman was now called in verse 10, to pass any decree he liked in the name of the king. And Haman sent out a proclamation to the whole Persian Empire in the king's name. And in verse 11, when the king gave Haman permission to do with the people as he pleases, later did he realize that his queen, Esther, was a Jewish and would be included in this hideous, this shockingly wicked plan to terminate, exterminate the whole race. So finally, we have Herman's proclamation, chapter 3, verse 12 to verse 15. All right, reading, reading beginning with verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the first month, 
the royal secretaries were summoned. They rolled out in a script of each province and the language of each people all handed orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Sarkis himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent out by DHL and FedEx. Dispatches were sent out by couriers uh, to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king in heaven sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Haman hit the fast track. Without any delay, we have Haman's proclamation in verse 12, written in the name of King Zacchaeus himself, and was sealed with his own ring. And with Zacchaeus' blessing, Haman had enacted, enacted a law that would cause the annihilation of the entire Jewish people. Now, the king's own ring in verse 12 is equivalent to the king's signature, right? And it was sent out to all the provinces and in all the various languages, right? A law has no impact, right, until it is publicized. And so that's what's being done. And the proclamation called for the death, notice here verse 13, the death of all Jewish people, including women and children, young and old. All of them. The attack on the Jews in Persia would not be limited to a specific area in and around the palace of Susa, but would include the entire kingdom, verse 14. This decree would affect every Jew that lived within the kingdom of Persia. And that's not all. Notice that in verse 13, this was a very ambitious plan to annihilate the Jews in just one day. And note that the edict is brutal. Notice the three words used to describe the destruction of the Jews, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. Can you hear the hatred? Can you hear the hatred? Haman intended to read the world of God's covenant people. And you know what I said earlier on? King Zacchaeus unwittingly approved this proclamation which will kill his own queen. We'll read in verse 14 that the proclamation was issued as a law, which means that it was irrevocable. But notice in verse 15. Well, King Zacchaeus and Haman parted away. This proclamation left the whole city of Susa bewildered. Bewildered. No specific reason is stated. But apparently such a proclamation made them bewildered because never before has such proclamation come up from the royal palace. Herman's bloodthirstiness, as well as King Zaki's seeming indifference to such atrocity was incredible even to a pagan nation. Even the pagan nation was puzzled at the extent and, and deadly racism of the king and Haman. 
the Persians themselves wonder why such a merciless slaughter was planned. Even in such a pagan culture, such a decree created much concern among the general population. They were bewildered. They were appalled. They were shocked. But we cannot relate to such brutality and hatred. I'll tell you this morning that the church is being persecuted today at an alarming rate. In many places around the world, innocent people are being killed simply because they profess the name of Jesus Christ. And like Hammond here, Satan seeks to destroy the church. Satan has no sympathy for anyone who is in Christ. I say to you that this will only intensify even as we draw closer to the second coming of Christ. Now, as I conclude, I want to point out that this Herman cost is but one scene in the providential narrative of Esther. They faced many challenges and persecutions, and yet God preserved them for His glory. Well, our own story, our own human cost may be much different. We may be suffering in many different ways. But remember this, the character of God never changes. Okay? Regardless of what we face, and no matter how frighteningly it may be, those of us who are saved by the grace of God are secure in the hand of our Lord and Savior. Okay? Now, Pastor, author, and current chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, Chuck Swindle, in his book, A Woman of Strength and Character, Esther, make these three compelling applications. One, he says from Mordecai, Never forget that there will always be someone who will resent your devotion to the Lord. Two, from Haman, never underestimate the diabolical nature of revenge. And three, from Zacchaeus, never overestimate the value of your own importance. And may I add a fourth compelling application? And this is from God. Never forget who is in charge. Never forget that God sees. Never forget that God does not overlook. Never forget that God does not forget. He is in charge. God leads His people providentially. In the book of Esther, God wasn't in the business of working direct, noticeable miracles. In fact, I think it must have been pointed out already since we have done and gone to Esther chapter 1, chapter 2. I don't know how many sermons have been preached on that already. I suppose it has been mentioned. In the book of Esther, you know, God isn't even directly mentioned at all in the book of Esther. Right? I see Pastor Vincent nodding. Yeah. God isn't mentioned. And do you know that King Zacchaeus' name is mentioned over 100 times in this short book? 
for the name of God is conspicuously and unprecedentedly absent. Now, what are we to make of that? What are we to make of that? Again, as we saw before, I think the point is that even though God is not mentioned, He is still active in the lives of His people. Okay? But bear this in mind, He is not active with signs and wonders to be observed. Rather, God is always active behind the scene. Providentially. And isn't that how you experience God usually in our own daily lives? Yeah? God's dealing with us, not necessarily always parting the Red Sea for you, you know, to cross over on dry land. But God certainly acts providentially. So here in this case, although great trouble was brewing for Mordecai and the Jews, we found out that God was not taken by surprise. Nor was he unable to meet their needs. Through it all, God was in control. And I suggest for us that Mordecai and Esther are both wonderful examples of living by faith in the unseen God. God is in control. My friends, no matter what is troubling you, I want you to leave this place, if nothing else, with just this phrase, this sentence. God is in control. Can you say that aloud? God is in control. That ought to comfort our hearts today. Jesus promised us that when he went away that he will be with us until the end of the age and that he'll come again and receive us to himself. Our lives are secure in him. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are troubled this morning by anything, trust him by faith. And for any of our friends listening in, whether it's here or on Facebook, if you are not yet saved, you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you to come to him and be saved. God is God. And as Samson said earlier on, there are three things that will not perish away our souls and the word of God. The third thing is God himself. The creator and sustainer of all things. Let us pray. Our sovereign Lord, we are so thankful that you are not bound to finite wisdom as we are. Lord, we praise you that your plans are always perfectly laid out according to your divine will. And that, Lord, you are never caught by surprise or left unprepared. That you are never forced to play catch-up in any situation. And, Lord, how that ought to comfort all of us who are believers in Christ today. That, Lord, because of that, we can rest in your sovereign wisdom and guidance. So, our Father, we ask that you help us to always remember that if our lives are lived according to your sovereign plan, that we'll always make the right decision and follow the right path in our daily lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.